Welcome to another round, the podcast that gives you an insight into brewing. My name is Yonidar, and with me from the capital of Ecuador, Quito, we have Nathan Keffer. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Glad to be here. All right, so I don't want to be judgmental or anything, but uh, uh, Nathan Kefford do not sound very Ecuadorian. <laughs> uh, no, not not very at all. I'm uh, fairly American from the U.S., and, and as they would say down here in Ecuador, they would call me a gringo. Yeah. <laughs> so so how does a, a gringo get from the U.S. to, uh, to Ecuador to start a brewery? Uh, yeah, I mean... Long story short, basically just chasing adventure. But, uh, you know, since this is a podcast and we're all about sharing our stories, I'll give you guys the longer version. Um, I was in university. Yeah, I was in university in in Oregon, at a a small university called Willamette uh, Mm -hmm. in the Oregon Valley. And so Oregon had a lot of great, amazing craft beer. And this is back in 2007 to 2011. And Mm -hmm. You know, while I was there, I got a chance to drink a lot of good craft beer, uh, Rogue, Hub, just, I mean, tons of stuff. And um, there I met a friend who was Ecuadorian, and he'd always had this lifelong dream of coming back to Ecuador and opening a hostel for backpackers and travelers. And his family had a building that was in the old historical uh, district of Quito. It's a UNESCO World uh, History Site. And... He asked myself and, and two other friends to come help him. And, you know, I'd always wanted to go to grad school, but need to take some time off in between and thought, well, hey, you know, I've worked in restaurants and, and pubs and bars and hotels since I was 15. This sounds like a good time to, you know, take a little bit of a break, go to South America, learn some Spanish and uh, just relax a little bit because, you know, university was was pretty intense, lots of work and, and just need some, some time to recuperate. So came to Ecuador. We uh, opened this backpacker hostel. Um, you know, this was about 11 years ago, and it's still going strong today. It's one of the best hostels in, in Quito. Mm. And, uh, you know, we just started doing the American thing, opening our doors to people, welcoming people, uh, doing all these things. And, and we started noticing that, you know, this was 11 years ago. So even in the U.S., craft beer was a little bit smaller it hadn't quite hit that second revolution or renaissance um so you know there was no by no means the the boom that there is today but here in in ecuador and in south america there was very little what you'd call craft beer um yeah it was just practically nothing there was just the big commercial guys producing the same lagers quito had two and I think, like from from a, a listener perspective as well, from my understanding, the 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 bigger industrial breweries, it's more about the the um, the German styles of uh, pilsners and yeah, Munchner Dunkel yeah. and these kind of beers, right? Yeah, exactly. And at that time, you know, there's really only two beers that were accessible in, in Ecuador that were mm. big macro brewers, and uh, one of them is the brand. The brand name is Pilsner. Like literally, yeah. that's what it says on the bill. There's Pilsner, <laughs> nothing else. And the other one is called Club, but uh, yeah. So there was there was just no craft beer here. And, and in Quito, Quito's a city of three million people. There was two small craft breweries, one that was like a German style, German inspired one run by a German, and the other one was a British one uh, run by Ecuadorians. And to be honest, at that time, both of them were very low quality. Uh, they were far away from us, and they brewed. Uh, in these European styles that 
you know, coming from the U.S., just fresh off the boat from Oregon, where hops are plentiful and IPAs and stouts, uh, we were really missing our our craft beer culture from the U.S. And we started talking to the clients coming through. And a lot of the clients coming through were from the U.S., Canada, Australia, Europe, the U.K. And one common thread that all of them had was kind of like, oh, you know, we miss good beer. You know, we we miss being able to sit down in the local pub and just having a nice pint. And that just wasn't a thing in Ecuador and kind of wasn't a thing in, in South America. You know, most of the bigger craft breweries in all of South America and even Central America at the time, they're about – nine to 10 years old. So we we're all kind of starting at the same time. Um, mm. And for travelers, it was kind of hard to find. So we decided, hey, you know, why don't we bring some of our, our American craft beer culture to Ecuador and share it with all of our new friends that we're making here, all the Ecuadorians, and at the same time provide something to all these travelers that are coming through that, you know, they're like, oh, you know, I've been on the road for six months and mm. I haven't had an IPA in six months. Like... <laughs> really wish I had an IPA. So that kind of, that, that was the dream. That was, that's how everything got started. So we, uh, we left the hostel, started making craft beer and, you know, started super small. We, neither myself nor my, my partners had any experience really homebrewing, like, you know, maybe a batch or two with friends on weekends, but, uh, practically nothing. So we just yeah. kind of hit the books, started talking to people, started practicing, you know, started with a thousand liter brew system and, and just brewed as much as we could and, and learned as much as we could. And it took a while for us to, to really get good at it. But now 10 odd years later, we're, you know, arguably one of the best breweries in, in Ecuador and we've mm. won numerous awards and medals and competitions. And, um, our customers seem to like the beer that keep coming back. So I think we're doing something right. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. So it's, it's you, Ryan Hood and Dan Malloy. Um, and, and the birth of Bandido Brewing was then back in 2013, if I don't remember incorrectly. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. 2012, 2013. Uh, we kind of officially celebrate our anniversary as October 19th, 2013. because that's when we mm. opened officially our, our pub. So we've been brewing before that we had, you know, things going before that but it took us about 10 months to legally open our location even though we were ready to go there was no construction needed but just the paperwork and all the chaos and bureaucracy of south america took a long long time and you know back then they were still on on paper documentation and everything and mm. so yeah officially we opened our pub which is uh was the first uh craft brew pub in the old town in the historical center um back in 2013 but we'd been brewing for for months before and had people coming by trying stuff had gone to a couple small events but yeah yeah you know been here since 2012 2013 it's uh is kind of fascinating because that that kind of makes i i, I find actually the whole craft beer movement kind of fascinating you know how um, the old styles were adopted to the U.S. and then being exported back to to other countries and the, the influence it has. But I think for for a lot of them, the the up and coming breweries today, um, they have never had the the struggles that that I can only imagine you have as one of the first craft breweries in in Ecuador. Um, I remember one of the uh, one of the this was years back, but one of the most common questions. I uh, I was asked during festivals in in Norway, 
was, um, do you have any of that uh, IPA pills? Because they couldn't <laughs> differentiate beer and pills because it was the very same thing. How has, uh -huh. how has that, that sort of journey and, and, um, and challenge has been for, for you trying to, of course, you have the, the, the tourists coming in, the, the people traveling coming in uh, from, from other countries, but for like the locals, how, how has the evangelism uh, been for you guys? Yeah, I mean it's been it's been a pretty wild ride, and and we were helped along a lot of the way by by tourism, by foreigners coming in uh, and kind of knowing what we were trying to do. But with the local mm. population, with Ecuadorians um, and other Latin Americans, it was definitely you know, especially the first couple of years, people would come up and and for them there was only three types of beer, um, yeah. and there, you know they had no difference between ale, beer, lager, but they knew on the craft side that there was. Uh, what we would say, Rubio Roja Negra. So blonde, red, black beer. Yeah. They had no idea that, you know, within blonde, you could have cream ale and saison and pale ale uh, and IPA. And within reds, it could be a Marzin or an amber ale or an Irish red. Or in the black beer, it could be like, it could be a brown beer. It could be a stout. It could be a porter. It could be whatever. There was That, that didn't exist. It was just <laughs> Rubio Roja Negra. And so there was a lot of us having to teach and, and, and share the culture with the people before we could really expand. And, and even the IPA, we were the first brewery in Quito to brew an IPA. Yeah. Probably the second brewery in all of Ecuador to brew an IPA. There was uh, a brewery on the coast run by a guy from California that was very small. It's still there. It's still small. Um, and they do, they do IPAs. Um, and he was probably the first. But in Quito... Mm -hmm. We were the very first, and it was kind of funny going forward. We were young when we opened the brewery. We were 22, 23, mm. and we were just kind of, you know, just just uh, ignorant and bold and, and just went <laughs> forward and, and did things that we thought would work, whether whether it was a good idea or not. And, and you know, things like our IPA. You know, our IPA is like uh, 65 IBUs, not the hoppiest IPA in the world, um, especially nowadays. But for that mm. time, for Ecuadorians, they were just like, what the heck is this? This is bitter. This is disgusting. This is this is awful. And um, along the way, we met other friends, other brewers that, you know, that we would jokingly talk about the IPAs. And, and they would tell these stories about how they did a little bit more official, like, testing their product with friends and families and market research. And, and they, you know, would come up with their IPA recipe and then have to drop the IBUs by half. Otherwise, people wouldn't <laughs> drink it. And then, you know, every couple batches, they would increase the IBUs just a little bit, just a little bit, just a little bit. So you had this creep in the culture of people being like, yeah. oh, like, okay, yeah, it's getting better, it's getting better. But for us, we just went, we went for it. You know, we were like, you either drink our nothing. IPA, yeah, you just drink it or you don't. Like, I don't care if you don't like it. We have other beers for you if you don't like the IPA, but I'm not going to turn my IPA into a double pale or, or a pale ale and call it an IPA just because you're not used to bitter beers. Like, no. I'm an American – I love my IPAs. I'm going to make a good IPA that I want to drink. Mm. And if you guys want to join me on this journey and you guys want to try these IPAs with me, great. And if not, that's okay. No problem. We have other beers for you that I think yeah. you're going to enjoy. I, uh, uh, it, rem it reminds me of, uh, of the story of um, uh, a fairly known beer called Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. When it uh -huh. when it came back in the in the end of the eighties, it was regarded an extreme an extreme beer with four to six IBUs, and it just yeah. goes to show how much is is changed. Try to have a 
try to have a a, a pale ale uh, anywhere uh, anywhere uh, lower than than fifty, and you, it's a little bit almost a little bit boring, right? So uh, yeah. it, it, it changes. So a little bit of an uphill, uh, a little bit of an uphill battle. It sounds like in the beginning for you trying to to convince people. Uh, are they now? The, the question, of course, is are are they getting on board? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, our IPA now is our is our best sold beer. It's the one that we produce probably. Uh, we have you know seven flagship beers that we do all year round, and then another five to six specials that are always happening and rotating in and out. And our IPA is the number one sold, number one brewed beer. It probably makes up close to 25 to 30% of our production, just the yeah. IPA. So people love it. And it's, you know, it's a good old school West Coast IPA. It's 64 IBUs or something like that. We use uh, Cascade, Chinook, um, Centennial sometimes, Willamette. Um, and it's, it's a, not super malty. But it's a little bit more like that West Coast IPA was back in the, the 90s. It's yep. not like today where you have all of your juices and hazies and, and whatnot. And and people really love it. They really drink it um, and they really enjoy it. And, you know, we were founders of the local Brewers Association, which okay. is doing incredibly well. You know, we were probably one of five, six breweries. We're the first, you know, founding members. Um, hmm. And now it's probably the strongest uh, craft brewers association in all of South America. Mm. And, you know, on top of that, it was interesting because, you know, like you're saying, we're talking about like, uh, the Sierra Nevada paleo in the eighties. So it really was like that here in, in South America in Latin America for us, you know, we were starting to a degree culturally the, where that Sierra Nevada, New Belgium, uh, Ballas Point all started back in the late seventies, early eighties. Like we're dealing with that same thing. Now we had the benefit that we could look at them for inspiration we could look for them for, for like what path they took and we could kind of help that, uh, use that as, as our own map. And, and the whole industry was more robust. So, you know, it's still very hard to get hops here. It's still very hard to get malt here. But there was a larger industry worldwide that had grown around these original titans of industry that did make it a little bit easier for us. Um, you know, allowed us to take some shortcuts. It still wasn't easy by any means and it's it's been difficult over the last 11 years even now this year i think is the first time that all craft beer in ecuador is finally breaking one percent of the the beer market in ecuador and this it's been 10 years to get there yeah yeah, it, it takes some time. It sounds like you're, uh, it's real uh, pioneer work that you're doing, maybe with a little bit more of a sophisticated compass, if I can use a metaphor, uh, than, uh, than back in the, in, in the, in the quote-unquote old days. But, uh-huh. but still, it sounds a little bit like an, an uphill, uh, uphill uh, battle. In, like, um, you, you talked a little bit about uh, Quito, um, uh, and that's your, your location. How is, how is like craft beer, you're mentioning 1%, but how is it? Um, uh, viewed throughout uh, Ecuador and, and maybe even South of America in, in terms of, of, of uh, their uh, experience of, of craft beer? Uh, you know, it's, it's viewed pretty favorably. People like South beer, uh, South American craft beer. And there's this thing culturally where in Latin America, a lot of um, people get the chance to, to study abroad, to travel abroad, to Europe, to uh, Australia, to Asia, to the U.S., and a lot of times what they do is, you know, when they're there, they're exposed to this culture of, of the pub life or of craft beer or of gastronomy that 
that previously didn't exist in their own country. So when they come back, they're looking for that still. That's something, you know, if you go to London and, or, or the UK and you're, you're studying abroad there, you spend a semester there, or you spend four years there, and then you come back to Ecuador, you know, you're going to miss that pub culture. You're going to miss that, that draft beer, that real ale that you had there. And so people look for those things that they experienced abroad. And that has really helped us uh, become more integrated in the, in the culture. And it's definitely take, taken time and years to do so. But that's been one of the keys. And, and also just our ability to, to play with ingredients. You know, mm. the standard Pilsner macro beer here is it's pretty basic. You know, it's, yep. it's not bad. There's a time to drink it. You know, if you're on the beach, it's hot out. It's 40 degrees Celsius, humid. Light lagers are great. Yep. But you won't ever see one of them putting uh, passion fruit or maracuya in their beer. No. You won't see them. You know, our, our second most popular beer is a beer that we brew. It's kind of a Belgian-inspired golden ale, and we brew it with honey and ginger. And it's all mm. local ingredients, and the people love it. It's our, our second most built, uh, brewed beer, our second most produced beer. And, you know, there's lots of sours going on in the, the world right now. People are just loving sours, and, and that's kind of the thing that's, that's popular at the moment. Um, here in Ecuador, we have an amazing group of fruits and spices mm. that we get to play with that um, we, can, we can enjoy and, and share with our, our customer base. You know, we have passion fruit sours that, that are just delicious. The fruit is so fresh. The beer is so fresh. Uh, we have a fruit called naranjilla here, which is, is very interesting. And you can find it in other parts of, of Latin America, but you wouldn't find it in Europe. And so it's very hard to describe. It's Its name means little orange, but it's not really like an orange except that it's citric. It's, it's very citric ah. in taste, um, but it doesn't have that same like pulp like a lemon or an orange might have. The, the insides are, are very different. And mm. so we mix that with strawberry and we have this amazing other sour that we produce. Um, Ecuador is the birthplace of cacao and mm. chocolate. You know, recently studies have discovered that Ecuador is the birthplace. It's probably where the origin of chocolate came from. And so we have amazing access to chocolate. Um, and where chocolate grows, coffee grows. You know, even though coffee was imported from the Middle East and, and the Arabs, there's still a huge thriving coffee industry here. So I get my pick of, of cacao, of coffee, and of all these super amazing fresh fruits and ingredients or spices that you wouldn't really find elsewhere. So that also has allowed us to really connect with, with the locals and with the tourists because, you know, the locals are like, oh, hey, like you're using this spice in your beer called Ishpingo. I grew up drinking Ishpingo in this tea that my grandmother used to make for me when it was cold outside. Yeah. And so it creates this connection. And then with the... You know, foreigners that are coming through, whether they're here living or working or just passing through, you know, you're like, hey, have you ever tried this spice called Ishpingo? No. Mm. What the heck is Ishpingo? <laughs> ah, it's, it's a f dried flower from the Amazon that they say grows on the, the trees of, of cinnamon. And it's mm. kind of like it's a mix between cinnamon and, and, and black pepper. Or, you know, we have slightly different fruits here as well. Like we have Mortinho, which is technically blueberry. But it's, it's a blueberry that grows up in the mountains at, you know, 2,500 meters, 3,000 meters, you know, about 10,000 feet. And mm. so it's, it's a bit different than your, your traditional blueberry that you'd find at a marketplace in, in the north. Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's for sure. And I think it's, um, it's very interesting to see the, the, the beers that you have. And 
how you mentioning it's it's hard to get like super fresh hop and uh, and uh, some of the ingredients is hard to get uh, there but the, how you use the yeah you, you mentioning the spice cocoa nibs from mindo uh, i mean there are so many so many opportunities to to create a a unique story and storytelling and, and connect i i find that really uh, really fascinating and but, but but there is one there is one thing we, that we cannot go without talking about here because um uh quito it, 2,805 meters above the sea, 9,350 feet for all the American listeners. Um, fantastic historic uh, city. Um, and uh, just a little bit of research. I see some of the pictures from the brewery. And you are in an 1850s chapel, which just looks, uh, from a logistical standpoint, it looks a little bit like a nightmare, but it also is one of the most uh, personal feeling breweries uh, that I've, I've seen in a, in a while. A little bit of the story of why do you choose to to go with something uh, as as a chapel for your production site and uh, and brew pub? Yeah, so um, that's a very interesting story, and uh, it's a little bit of a chaotic one, but. Um, <laughs> You know, and, and we've since had to move the production facility out of that location because it was just it was too small, and there was problems with uh, increasing production, uh, both size wise and um, regulation wise. Mm-hmm. However, we spent the first four years brewing in there on a two hundred liter system, and uh, oh man, like those you know the doorways are so small because they're made for people from the eighteen fifties and like tiny Latinos and you're just like, you're walking around carrying kegs, bumping your heads on these archways. And <laughs> it was, uh, it's definitely an adventure. Um, and we ended up there because it was very close by to the location of the hostel that we had founded. And, mm. um, it was an old colonial house from the 1850s owned and occupied by the same family since the 1850s. Mm. And it was very large and, you know, it's since been piecemealed up by generations, but, um, the current owner was, uh, a very interesting figure. He was, you know, had basically a turn, the bottom part of his house, um, into a nightclub okay. or a bar <laughs> back in the the eighties and nineties. And eventually he got a little bit older, started raising kids, decided to close it, but he'd always been very connected to the church and very, very much a person of, of the community and, and the people. And so, he, um, there had always been a chapel a part of this house back in the day, these old colonial houses that were very large, uh, that were owned by people that were very devout Catholics. The majority of these larger houses had a private chapel in the, the house and they would go to mass, you know, back then people would go to mass two or three times a week. Sometimes yeah. there was often daily prayers. There was often, uh, private family ceremonies on saint days and things like that. So People tended to go to the big churches, the cathedrals on Sunday or, you know, once a month for the bigger things. But a lot of the smaller events always happened in the more local chapels, whether it be inside your house or in the local uh, neighborhood. And Mm. so we surmise that from the 1850s on, there had been a chapel in this building and the owner had always kept it there. Even when he had a bar there, it was Mm. a chapel and that was always part of the appeal of it. And then when he closed the bar down, he opened the chapel more up to the community. He had monks coming in. He had um, priests coming in. And we, when we came, uh, 
he was just overjoyed to have someone like us come in. We were super respectful. We had these business plans, these ideas. And I think it reminded of him, uh, him of us, of himself when he was, yeah. was younger. And so we first started renting half the building. And uh, then we started slowly taking over more and more and more. But the, the chapel's still there. You know, we will always forever have the chapel there. For as long as we're there in that building, um, that chapel will, will remain a part of the community. And it's still... Uh, on Sundays, open for the community. They run a soup kitchen out of it um, oh. for special days like Days of Saints or uh, Easter, which here is called Semana Santa. It's opened and usually a priest comes and does a little bit of, of mass or something like that. So during the rest of the week, we don't have petitioners. We don't have people coming to pray. But uh, on Sunday, it still opens its doors. And, and it's, you know, it's small. It's not very large. There's, you know, right now there's probably space for uh, – just the actual chapel area, um, probably space for 25 people, um, 30 people. And then, you know, if they need more space, they can bleed out into the, the pub section. Uh, but, you know, there's a, there's a very tight connection between um, pubs, monasteries, and the production of beer throughout history. Mm. And, in fact, one thing that, that probably you would love to hear about and, and maybe the listeners is that Quito actually has the oldest – brewery in all of South America from okay. 1588. That is old. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's potentially the oldest in all of the Americas, including mm. Canada and the U.S. There's one other location, one other monastery in Mexico that is maybe was founded 10 or 20 years before, but, you know, uh, we're still waiting to hear back on that. Yeah. But it's a a monastic brewery that was founded in uh, the conclave of San Franciscan monks by this amazing monk who was uh, born of Flemish royalty, but he was a second or third son, became a monk. And this was before Belgium was Belgium, right? It was still part of like Flanders. Uh, Ended up in Ecuador and he brought uh, wheat and barley to the Americas, to South America. And he realized that, you know, there was an opportunity both for substance of the monks that were there, but also the people to start brewing and to use the barley in beer production. So um, unfortunately, the, the brewery is now closed. It's been closed since the, the 70s when the last uh, monk who was a master brewer passed away and they couldn't find anyone to replace him. Now it's a museum. You can come to Quito. You can go to... Plaza San Francisco, where the monastery of the San Franciscan monks are. And you can go look at all these old lotter tons made of wood and, and these old uh, brinks and these old uh, cool ships. That I have no idea how old the cool ship is. It's probably two or three hundred years old. Um, and, you know, at, at one point we had Peter Buchart here. who Peter Buchart is one of the was the head brewer of New Belgium. Um, he's also a very famous brewer from from Belgium itself. And he came in and he was just like, wow, like this reminds me of being a kid growing up in Belgium and learning to brew in Belgium and, and working with the monks. And it was, it's pretty incredible. You know, if you're ever in Quito, go check it out. For any beer nerd, it's, it's a mecca. It's, it's a holy site of, of beer. I find it fascinating, you know, uh, talking to you and the enthusiasm that you, you're sharing with us. Um, uh, one does not think of uh, Ecuador as the uh, um, natural beer tourism place, but uh, with the old history that you're sharing and the fact that you can actually 
uh, go to church and have a beer in the uh, in the old yeah. chapel. I, I really enjoy that, and I uh, I gotta I gotta say I I really am cheering for for what you're trying to do, and uh, also just like a tiny bit of of jealous that you're able to <laughs> to uh, sort of open the eyes of so many people uh, in uh, in uh, in 2023 for craft beer. I uh, I appreciate yeah. uh, I appreciate that. So it's, and it's also been... hmm? go ahead. Yeah, it's been, it's been a wild ride. And, and to be honest, like, you know, I, I highly encourage anyone that can to come to Ecuador and just hang out and try some of the beer. I think that because of certain things culturally as well as uh, laws and trade agreements, Ecuador has one of the best um, brewing regions in in all of Latin America. You know, mm. we're definitely on par with much larger countries, Brazil, Argentina, Chile. Um, and I think that other countries that are about the size of Ecuador, we, we do... I mean, I'm going to say this, and I'm I'm obviously biased, but I think we do some of the best beer in in our region, um, better mm. than some of our neighbors. And uh, we have there's just you know there's such a, a small entrepreneurial spirit here, and such a, a love of craft beer on the on a cultural level that there's a lot of breweries here. You know, mm. they tend to be smaller. The largest brewery in in Ecuador that's considered craft only has a, a brew house of about 3000 liters, you know, 30 barrels or so. Um, but there's tons that are two barrels, three barrels, like nano breweries. And it's just people inspired by what they've seen and, and, and what they've tasted and, and wanting to try their own hand on it. So there's mm. a lot of beer here and much of it is, is top notch. And it's something that I would compete with on the world market in the U S in Europe, in Germany. So it's definitely it's worth a, checking out. And it sounds like they're already creating their own identity with the use of the local ingredients that is not widely available uh, at the rest of the uh, rest of the craft beer world. Exactly. So, all right. Well, I'm not going to take anything anymore of your time, uh, Nathan. Uh, as the listeners are sure have heard, uh, there is uh, stuff going on in the back there. So uh, I am <laughs> I'm sure you need to get back for, to... Uh, to uh, maintaining the, the both the chapel and of course the, the brewery, but I just want to thank you for for taking the time, sharing uh, the story and uh, your story and a little bit of the uh, what I would say is a little bit of the unknown story of uh, beer in in Ecuador and uh, yeah I I. I, I I'm not going to say that I need to stop doing this podcast, but uh, everyone I talk to uh, just makes me want to go and and uh, and visit and taste and everything. And I don't think my wallet uh, can uh, <laughs> take another trip, especially not to to uh, to Ecuador. But uh, uh, for sure, um, Bandido Brewing is now on the on the to visit list for for me at least. <laughs> Good, you're always welcome, and uh, we're not going anywhere. So when you find the funds, when you find the time come down and, and we'll show you a good time we'll show you some good beer yeah that sounds like a good plan <laughs> all right thank you very much for the time nathan yeah salute thank you for coming with me to Quito and for listening to my talk with nathan from bandido brewing i have said it before this podcast will take you all over the world of fermentation and that is why in the very next episode we will be visiting china so i hope you have subscribed and that you have shared this podcast with a friend so you have something to talk about the next time you meet up for a cold brew. Until next time, have fun, drink well, take care.